This is Charles Bush, also known as Oz's Nat Ginsburg, and welcome to Inside Oz Podcast. Ginger, ginger, broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, gave him a clout, and landed on his back. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is that, oh, shit. I'll be Talking about revolution. But I saw that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as I come. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. I hope you're all doing well and I just want to say a huge thank you for all of your support through this third series. I know I've said this before so I'll keep it brief, but when I launched the podcast a couple of years ago, I was anxious about how well it would perform. As with anything when you're self-sufficient, the start was slow but gradually the show began to build and build. Since that time, the podcast began to perform better once we got into Series 2, and that trend has continued into Series 3, so I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to the show and continues to help make the podcast a success. This is also the last chance that I'll get to speak to my US listeners before you all head to the polls on Election Day on November 3rd. 2020 has been a challenging year, probably the most challenging for a number of us, and with everything that has happened in the US this year, To say the country is at a crossroads would be a bit of an understatement. With all of that in mind, I'm not going to use this platform to tell you who you should vote for. All I will say is that this is your chance to use your voice. You have democracy at your disposal. Do not take that for granted, and no matter what anybody tells you, your voice matters. And whichever side of the political fence you sit, you need to exercise the right to make your voice heard. So please find out where you can cast your vote, or if the ability to vote via postal ballot hasn't been completely destroyed yet, use that. If you're a long-time listener of the show, you'll know that I'm based in the UK, so having me tell you who to vote for would be a bit hypocritical of me, so I'm not going to do that. All I'll say is that there are people around the world who don't have a say in how their country is run, but you do. So seize that opportunity and make your voice heard. So now that we've reached the end of our party political broadcast, it's time to say that today we're looking back at Series 3, Episode 7, Secret Identities. The episode was written by Tom Fontana and Sunil Nair. Eagle-eyed viewers amongst you will have noticed Sunil's name in the closing credits across the first two seasons of the shows. From 1997 to 1999, he worked as Tom Fontana's assistant, both here on Oz and on Homicide Life on the Street. This is his first writing credit for TV, but he will write more and will also undertake a different role in the show as we carry on, but I'll cover that more when we reach that point in our timeline. The episode was directed by Adam Bernstein, and get used to hearing his name because this is the first of nine episodes that he'll direct, more than anyone else that worked on the show, and much like Sunil, he will also assume another role on the show, but again, 
More on that another time. Born May 7th, 1960 in Princeton, New Jersey, and a recipient of the Good Citizenship Medal from the Daughters of the American Revolution, Adam attended Princeton University, graduating in 1982. Cutting his teeth as an animator, producing the first original programming for Nickelodeon, as well as working as an editor for 1987's Dull Day Afternoon, Adam's early directing career revolved around music videos, his debut coming in 1987 for There Might Be Giants' Don't Let's Start, while in 1988 he directed the video for EPMD's You Gots To Chill, and in 1989 he directed the videos for the B-52 singles Rome and Love Shack, Public Enemy's Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, the Beastie Boys' Hey Ladies, and reunited with EPMD for the video to their single, So What You Saying. Directing videos for Violent Femmes, ZZ Top, King's X, Sir Mix-a-Lot and Bruce Springsteen throughout the early 90s, Adam's film directing debut came in 1994 for It's Pat the Movie, as well as directing an episode of The Adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon. Moving further into TV directing, Adam received credits for House of Bugging and Inside Eddie Johnson in 1995 and 96 respectively, while in 1997 he directed Six Ways to Sunday, for which he also received a producer credit, as well as his sole writing credit and also has a very loose connection to Oz, featuring an appearance by Peter Apel, who we saw previously as Shirley's lawyer. In 1998, Adam turned his attention to directing sketch comedy, directing on Comedy Central's Upright Citizens Brigade, while in 1999 he directed the unaired pilot episode to Strangers with Candy, which would later go to series on Comedy Central, although Adam didn't return to the show. Also in 1999, Adam directed on Homicide Life on the Street, directing the seven-season episode Shades of Grey, before directing Here on Art. Holding an 8.6 on IMDb, the episode was originally broadcast on August 25th, 1999, a day on which, after six years of claiming otherwise, the FBI admitted that their agents might have fired potentially flammable gas during the 1993 siege with the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas although the agency continued to believe that the fire which engulfed the compound was not started by them. Also on this day, Turkish lawmakers approved new taxes to help pay for damages resulted from earthquakes, while in the state of Florida, federal agents arrested 50 employees of American Airlines believed to be involved in the smuggling of drugs and weapons. Know thyself. That's what Socrates said. Or Aristotle, or one of them dead white men. To know yourself. That's the hardest thing any one of us can ever do. So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus quoting Socrates, or Aristotle, or one of those dead white men, and Schillinger dressed in his best Greek robes in a thinking pose. Socrates, of course, the Greek philosopher and one of the founders of Western philosophy, and Aristotle, the founder of the Lyceum and the peripatetic school of philosophy. This is one of Augustus' shorter opening monologues that we've seen on the show, I don't know if that was a conscious decision for this to get straight into the episode or not, but from where they were at the start of our run, they are getting noticeably shorter. The first scene sees us join a session in progress between Sister Pete and Keller, with her explaining about not wanting to feel guilty, and Keller, after the tease of doing so last episode, going straight for the boob. Which Pete looks shocked at to begin with, but Keller starts to work some magic, and Sister Pete, you saucy minx, she actually seems to be enjoying this as she holds Keller's hand in place. The siren sounds which jolts Pete awake, and it turns out this was a dream all along. So we talked previously about Keller switching the questioning, and thereby the power, 
around in their sessions and him exploiting any opening given to him and trying to get into Sister Pete's head. Clearly, Keller has managed to do just that, and it's something which really goes a long way to establish just how good he is at playing these mind games, and how he's able to get people like Beecher to fall for him. He preys on people's vulnerabilities. Sister Pete is a smart woman, and will have seen it all during her time at Oz, and talked to every kind of prisoner you can think of. But Keller, he is a different breed, able to play with a person's emotions, their weaknesses and is just able to completely infiltrate their thoughts. Beecher questioned his sexual identity because of Keller. Sister Pete is having sexual thoughts she probably hasn't had for years since she joined the convent because of Keller. There is just something about this man that captivates you, but ultimately breaks you down and makes you dependent on him. Cut to M-City where Murphy is asking Keller why he hasn't left for his session with Sister Pete. Keller, however, doesn't feel like going and says that he wants to fit in some more gym time. Murphy tells an officer to escort him there, which we see him doing so along with some of the other regular background players, as Keller takes a look towards Sister Pete's office, noticing her pacing back and forth as he looks pleased with himself for his actions. Cut back to Pete who hears someone coming and turns around hoping for it to be Keller arriving for their session, but sadly for her it's only Beecher who's still having to get around using his cane. Beecher also seems to have regressed back to his crap haircut, which is always sad to see. He asks if Keller has left already, but Pete tells him that he never came, and that it's the second time that Keller has missed an appointment, and asks whether or not Keller's okay. Beecher says that he seems okay, but they're not really talking at the moment. Pete asks whether or not Keller has ever mentioned his and her sessions, Beecher telling her no before asking if she's feeling okay, Pete telling him yes as she looks longingly out of the window. Cut to M-City where Keller and Augustus are hanging out in a pod, which might have answered my question from last week about who Keller is currently sharing with. And this is the first real time that we've seen these two just hanging out together. The only other time we've ever seen them together was when they're watching TV. It's also another one of those moments where we join an anecdote a second or so too late, with Augustus calling Keller a liar, but Keller swearing that he's telling the truth. Beecher enters and asks Keller what's going on between him and Sister Pete calling her a mess due to Keller missing his appointments. But Keller, acting like a smug prick, says that he doesn't know what Beecher's talking about. Beecher sticks up for Sister Pete, saying that if Keller's gonna fuck with her, then he'll fuck with Keller and calls Keller a bitch as he leaves the pod. Augustus asks what all that was about, Keller calling it Beecher's time of the month, as we see Saeed consoling Beecher in the common room. And in a break from tradition, we will return to this story in a little while as we cut to Murphy telling Miguel that it's time to go for his meeting with the Riveras. Although a lot of stories on the show intertwine with one another, we do more often than not have very defined segments during each episode, kind of like, this is Beach's part of the story, this is Ryan's, and so on and so on. Here though, we get a very definite breakaway from Sister Pete's storyline with Keller to go to a story with Miguel. It's a good change-up from the norm. So after a lot of build throughout this third season, we finally get the meeting between Miguel and Rivera. And I really like that although the guards are stationed outside of the room, they're using the visiting room again for this, Sister Pete closes the blinds so that the only people in the room are her, Miguel, and the Riveras as Sister Pete goes over the ground rules. Those being that she's leading the meeting, to refrain from interrupting each other, which is probably a rule put in place for Tina more than anything else, and to tell the truth, no use of profanity, 
and the most important rule of all is to listen. Miguel can't bring himself to look the Riveras in the face, and Sister Pete even has to ask him to take his seat. He's still obviously not quite prepared for this meeting to take place, even though it's been a long time coming. Sister Pete gets things off to a controlled start by allowing Eugene to speak first. Eugene saying that he can't see Miguel, and asks whether or not Miguel can see him. Miguel barely manages to answer as he says that he can, as Eugene asks if Miguel can see his wife, calling him a lucky man because all that Eugene ever wanted was to wake up to Tina's face every day, but he'll never see her face again because of Miguel's actions. Cutting through the pleasantries, Eugene asks why it was him that Miguel attacked. Does Miguel know something that he doesn't? Is there a reason why he deserved this? But Miguel mutters under his breath, saying no. Pete asks if Miguel has ever thought about what this whole situation might be like for Eugene, but Miguel can only manage a kind of as a response, which sets Tina off and rather predictably breaks every rule that was set out at the start, asking why she and her husband have to live with this, and how they argue about having a child because of it. Miguel this whole time is sat with his arms across his body and with a serious case of restless leg. This meeting seems to be taking a toll on him more than it is the Rivera's, which I know sounds an odd thing to say, but while I've come to expect Tina's outbursts, Eugene is by and large calm throughout the whole thing and just wants an answer as to why it was him. Was it a gang thing? Did, did you do it because of Hernandez? You earn your cojones by blinding me? Started out that way, yeah. But, uh, yeah, this place... I hate this fucking place. What it did to my grandpa, my dad, and me. I don't know you, you know? I had nothing against you. It's your uniform, bro. I was an hermano in that uniform, man. I want my eyes back. I know. Sorry. You what? Sorry. No! I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me! I can't. Why not? You took them! Forgive me. Fuck you. Eugene. Miguel asked you a question. Can you forgive him? Not today. All right, but uh, let, let's leave the door open for the possibility of another meeting, okay? Eugene? Maybe. So the Riveras leave without getting the answers that they wanted, but the door has been left open for these meetings to continue. You saw at the start of the scene and at the end that Eugene has taken to rolling a pair of dice as something of a coping mechanism. And it's a good piece of symbolism here as he throws a pair of wands, more commonly known as snake eyes. Due to being the lowest possible roll, it often means that a player loses the game, which is exactly what's happened to Eugene here by not getting his answer. In more recent times, house rules of certain casinos and even some board games have amended the snake eyes rule to allow the player a bonus due to its rarity. According to the Dictionary of Etymology, the term traces as far back as 1919, while in ancient Rome the act of rolling a pair of wands was known as the dog's throw. 
We get an Augustus vignette discussing why Superman needs a secret identity, where he concludes that Superman is schizophrenic because his id is fucking with his ego, as we see a pair of beachers arguing with each other. One dressed in his suit, and the other as Beecher Man in fetching orange and purple spandex. Gotta say, I'm more of a Batman guy than I am Superman. I always found Superman to be a bit of a dick and struggled to get behind him because he's indestructible unless you just so happen to have a certain type of rock nearby. Batman does get a mention from Augustus later in the episode, but for now we see Sister Pete walking through M-City to talk with Keller. And you know shit is serious when Sister Pete comes down to M-City because she never comes down to M-City. I think the only other time we've seen her in the unit before this was in the debut episode where she wanted to talk about sex with McManus. She heads over to Keller who sat playing chess with Ryan. And I'm assuming that Keller now knows how to play the game because he was given out last time we saw him playing it with Beecher who was trying to teach him. I also love the skills from Cyril spinning that book on his finger. Pete asks to speak with Keller privately and they head into his pod. He apologises for leaving out his adult mags as Sister Pete asks why he's missed their last two sessions. Keller saying that he's been afraid to come back after she managed to get him open up the last time, and that he's afraid of exposing himself to Sister Pete any further. I'll say one thing for Keller, he certainly has a way with words and innuendo. He says that the reality is that he hates himself, Pete calling that as good a reason as any to come back to the sessions. Keller turns on the charm once again, asking Pete if she knows what it's like to want and long for someone even just to touch them, Pete saying that she does, and all the while Keller is leaning further and further in as if he's going to kiss Pete, acknowledging that she's a psychiatrist and nun, but a woman first and foremost. Before he can seal the deal, Murphy knocks on the glass asking if Pete's okay, Pete saying that she's fine, but most importantly not seeming to fall for any of Keller's advances. She says that she can help Keller, which he wants her to do by talking to Beecher, Pete realising that this is what it's all been about, gaining her trust so that she can help Keller reach Beecher. Keller reckons that Beecher will listen to Pete because he trusts her, but Pete says that Keller still doesn't understand the situation because Beecher doesn't trust like he did before, Keller having broken that trust and claims that Beecher can't trust him ever again. Keller claims that he's changed, but Pete asks if he truly has, admitting that he manipulated her the same way that he did Beecher and that much like Beecher, she doesn't trust Keller anymore either. Pete goes to leave, but Keller grabs her by the arm, pulling her back, but Pete firmly tells him to let go, which he eventually does. As Pete leaves, Keller tells her hell hath no fury, before leaning back on his bed to close the scene. I know I'm beginning to sound like a broken record when discussing these scenes between Keller and Pete, but I loved this. Chris Maloney and Rita Marino have such a chemistry on screen together that Everything between them just works so well. I always thought that Hell Hath No Fury Like a Woman Scorned was a Bible verse, which is apparently a common misconception, as well as being miscredited to have come from the works of William Shakespeare. The phrase actually derives from Act 3, Scene 2 of William Congreve's 1697 play The Morning Bride, written as, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turn, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Using Pete to get to Beecher shows as well that Keller really doesn't care who he tramples on in order to get what he wants. By his own admission, he manipulated Schillinger while up at Lardner, he manipulated Beecher when he got to Oz, and now he's manipulated Pete, all in pursuit of his own gain. It goes a long way to re-establishing Keller as a villain, albeit a very charismatic one. 
cut to Pete in her office looking over the news clippings from her husband's murder. And we get a lot of character development just within the headline, as we see that her husband Leonard died aged 45, and that he was a musician who acted as a patriot for poor students. The name Leonard there is a nod to Rita Marino's real-life husband, Leonard Gordon, who had been married close to 35 years at the time this episode was broadcast. We transition from Pete looking at the clippings, to her visiting with Ray for confessional, to close out Act 1. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I had lust in my heart. You haven't acted on this lust? No. But, uh... You may. No. Then? Well, it's, uh... It's, it's opened up all of these feelings in me. Feelings that I thought I had paved over years ago. And, uh... Now that I'm back in touch with these feelings, I... I it, it seems wrong to shut them off again. I owe it to my soul to be all of the things that I am, all of the parts of myself. I've decided to leave the convent. To stop being a nun. So Pete deciding to lead the convent is a huge decision that she had to make based on the feelings that Keller has brought to the surface. A nun can leave the convent at any time, although it's easier to do so in the earlier stages as sometimes a nun may take temporary vows when first joining the convent. In order to leave, Pete would have to have dispensation from a bishop, otherwise it would be considered a sin or a betrayal of her faith. In Pete's case, the dispensation would likely fall under breaking her vow of chastity, meaning that she was unable to get married or have any sexual or romantic relationships, and is just one of the many vows that nuns take, which in and of themselves vary from church to church. This isn't the end of Sister Pete on the show. She's very clear about how she's leaving the convent, but not leaving a role as a psychiatrist. And this leaving the convent is a storyline that will continue into series four, but I will cover that when we get to it. For now though, let's give Sister Pete the proper introduction treatment on the podcast, and as you've heard me mention a few times, Sister Pete is played by Rita Moreno. Born December 11th, 1931 in Humacao, Puerto Rico, and raised in nearby Juncos, Rosa Dolores Alverio moved to New York City with her mother when she was just four years old, and adopted the surname of her stepfather, Edward Moreno, and spent her teenage years in Valley Stream, New York a place we discussed when I introduced Steve Buscemi to the podcast a couple of episodes ago. After taking dancing lessons shortly after arriving in the US, Rita started to provide voiceover work to Spanish-language versions of US films at just 11 years of age, and made her Broadway debut at 13 years of age in 1945 Skydrift playing the part of Angelina, a role which attracted the attention of Hollywood scouts, 
agents and producers including Louis B. Mayer, the man responsible for giving her the name Rita. Making her film debut in 1950's So Young So Bad, Rita also appeared in the movies The Toast of New Orleans and Pagan Love Story that same year, while in 1952 she received credits for The Ring, Singing in the Rain, The Fabulous Senorita and Cattletown. Appearing mostly in minor roles throughout the early 1950s, many of which Rita says she disliked due to their stereotypical portrayal, Rita began a torrid love affair with Marlon Brando after meeting him in 1954, an affair which lasted over eight years and included a botched abortion and Rita attempting suicide with Brando's own sleeping pills, details of which, along with revelations of romantic tussles with Elvis Presley, are covered in a 2013 self-titled memoir. In 1956, Rita appeared as Tup Tim in The King and I, as well as The Vagabond King, and in 1957 played Hetty Hutter in The Deerslayer. Making her TV debut in 1958, Rita appeared in the fifth season of Father Knows Best, and in 1960 appeared in an episode of Bourbon Street Beat, as well as the movie This Rebel Breed. Rita received her big break in 1961 for her role as Anita in Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins' West Side Story the successful film adaptation of the 1957 Broadway musical of the same name. Rita won the Best Supporting Actress Award at the Academy Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, and the Laurel Awards, along with the film itself winning a further nine Academy Awards, as well as a number of other accolades. After appearing in the movie Cry of Battle and on TV in Burke's Law in 1963, Rita returned to the Broadway stage in 1964, appearing as Iris Parodius Brewstein in The Sign in Sydney Brewstein's Window, debuting at the Longacre Theatre on October 15th, 1964, a mere 20 years to the day before the birth of a certain Inside Oz podcast host, but the play closed soon afterwards due to a lack of funding. It was also during this time Rita met her husband, Leonard Gordon, the couple marrying the following year. Returning to film in 1968 in the night of the following day, appearing with her former lover Marlon Brando, Rita also appeared in Poppy and Marlowe in 1969, before returning to the stage in 1970, joining the cast of Last of the Red Hot Lovers at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre, as well as appearing in Gantry, which opened at the George Abbott Theatre on February 14, 1970, which closed after just one performance. From 1971 to 1977, Rita appeared in all 780 episodes of PBS's children's educational show The Electric Company, alongside Morgan Freeman and convicted sex offender Bill Cosby, during which time she won a Grammy Award in 1972, as well as earning an Emmy Award nomination for her appearance in Out to Lunch in 1974 and a run on stage in the National Health at the Circle in the Square Theatre. Rita earned a Drama Desk Award nomination and a Tony Award win for her role as Googie Gomez in the Ritz at the Longacre Theatre in 1975, as well as BAFTA and Golden Globe nominations for the same role in the 1976 movie adaptation. Also in 1976, Rita won her first Emmy Award, winning in the Outstanding Continuing or Single Performance by a Supporting Actress in Variety or Music category for her appearance on The Muppet Show while two years later in 1978 she received a Primetime Emmy Award nomination in the Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series category and a Primetime Emmy Award win in the Outstanding Guest Actress in a Drama Series category, both for her appearance as Rita Kapkovich in The Rockford Files. Closing out the 70s on TV with credits for Anatomy of a Seduction and The Muppets Go Hollywood, Rita opened up the 1980s appearing in the movies Happy Birthday Gemini, before returning to the theatre stage once again appearing as Louise in Wally's Cafe. 
1982, Rita took a break from film and stage to focus on a TV career, earning a Primetime Emmy Award nomination for Portrait of a Showgirl and Primetime Emmy and Golden Globe Award nominations for 9 to 5, the TV spin-off of the 1980 Dolly Parton movie, appearing for three seasons. In 1985, Rita returned to the stage playing one of the leads in Neil Simon's revised for a female cast version of The Odd Couple, playing the role of Olive Madison, in which saw Rita win the Sarah Siddons Award for the show Chicago Run. The show opened on Broadway at the Broadhurst Theatre on June 11, 1985, running until February 23rd the following year, after over 300 performances. 1986 saw Rita appear in The Golden Girls during the show's second season finale, while in 1987 she reunited with her Electric Company co-star and convicted sex offender Bill Cosby during the third season of The Cosby Show. In 1989, Rita appeared as Congresswoman Madeline Woods in Miami Vice and as Kimberly Baskin alongside Burt Reynolds in the short-lived BL Striker on ABC. Rita returned to film in 1991 for Ages and Everything, as well as appearing at the inauguration of President Bill Clinton and performing at the White House in 1993 while in 1994 Rita appeared alongside Oz co-stars Lauren Velez and John Cedar in the film I Like It Like That, and also gained TV credits for The Nanny on CBS, as well as voicing the lead in Fox's Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego for four seasons until 1999, a role for which she received Daytime Emmy Award nominations for three consecutive years from 1995 to 1997. 1994 to 1995 saw Rita appear in 16 episodes of NBC's The Cosby Mysteries, reuniting once again with a former Electric Company co-star and convicted sex offender Bill Cosby, as well as credits on TV for The Magic School Bus and The Wharf Rat, while on film Rita appeared as herself in the documentary Carmen Miranda, Bananas Are My Business, as well as the movie Angus, before appearing here on Oz. Act 2 then opens up with Leo questioning El Cid about the drugs they found on him and where he got them from, but El Cid is giving him the no-speak-the-English treatment, repeatedly saying que. Leo threatens him with an additional five years to his sentence just for obstruction of justice, as well as a charge for possession, but El Cid ain't budging. Leo tells him, fine, I'll get it out of one of you compadres, and tells the guard to get El Cid the fuck out of there. El Cid gets switched out for Carlo, and Leo tells him that he's a better person than the rest of the Latinos, and mentions about his family visits, and it looks like for a moment that Carlo is going to play a ball and answer Leo's questions but he also pretends to not understand and asking que. Leo tells the guard to take Carlo back to the hall and that until he talks, Carlo won't see an inch of daylight and that if he finds anything out from anyone else then Carlo will never see it again. We've had a couple of these scenes where Leo is questioning inmates and I always really like that he never gets anywhere with them. He would be the shittest detective walking the earth with the amount of progress that he makes from his questioning. Cut to the reception desk where Carlo's sister Margarita, played by Natasha Diaz and the one who along with the fruit basket we've seen the most out of the visiting Ricardo clan, tells Diane that she's come for a visit with Carlo. Diane takes a look at a clipboard and informs Margarita that she won't be seeing Carlo today because he's in ADSEG and explains what that means. Margarita plays her I want to speak to your manager card and we cut to McManus' office where he explains why Carlo has ended up in the hull and that he isn't going to bend to Margarita's demands. He gets a sob story about how the Ricardo family is falling apart, and that she's all that Carlo has left, but she's moving to Oakland for work and needs to see Carlo before she goes, so that he knows that she hasn't abandoned him like the rest of the family. 
She asks to see Carlo for just one minute, but McManus, to his credit, stands his ground and refuses to back down. He does, however, offer a compromise of taking a note from her to Carlo, saying that he'll make sure that Carlo receives it. Cut to later in the day where McManus is leaving in a hurry, possibly for another hot day at Al's diner on Chisholm, but before he goes he passes the staff room where he sees Lepresti and Menia. He hands the letter off for Lepresti to give to Carlo and leaves, allowing for Menia to get into Lepresti's ear about taking notes to inmates, as Lepresti tosses the letter in the trash, and the scene closes on Carlo sat in the hall crying, which looks very similar to a scene we saw earlier in the series, it's probably reused footage. In the wake of Metzger's murder, Lepresti has sort of become the go-to evil staff member during this third series. Some might argue that Claire is the bigger villain, but she seems more focused on messing things up for the staff rather than the inmates. While she did put a beating on Bevelacqua, she did radio through when she found Giles unconscious. Lepresti, on the other hand, had direct involvement in the death of Andrew Schillinger, so for me, that elevates him above Claire in the evil fucker rankings. We get a quick flashback of the scrap between Clayton and Carlo from earlier in the series, as we cut to Clayton arriving for work along with his mother Lenore, played by Elaine R. Graham, credited here simply as Elaine Graham. Born June 19th, 1949 in Brooklyn, New York, Elaine attended the New York School of Art before making her acting debut on TV in an episode of Ryan's Hope on ABC. Appearing in minor roles throughout the 1980s, with credits for Another Life, A Doctor's Story, an uncredited appearance in The Secrets of My Success, and Spencer for Hire, Elaine also made her off-Broadway debut appearing in two runs of The Talented Tenth, staged at New York City Centre Stage 1 and 2 in Manhattan. Elaine also appeared on stage at the Actors Theatre of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, in the theatre anthology productions Ten Minute Plays and Various Small Fries. The first recurring role on TV was for the role of Etta Burrell on Another World, where she appeared in eight episodes, and she also appeared in a number of TV commercials for brands such as American Express, Verizon, an infomercial about restless leg syndrome, and in 1999 appeared in a commercial for Aquafresh before appearing here on Oz. So Lenore is speaking with Officer Breesey and embarrasses Clayton, saying that she's dropping him off for work because his car's at the mechanics. It's really quite sweet because that's what mothers do. They embarrass you even when they don't mean to. She says that she wants to say hi to Leo and sure enough, Leo turns up and they share a big hug. She admits that it's strange being back in Oz, telling Leo about how she was saying to his wife about how she didn't think she could come through the prison doors, but says that Clayton has never been happier and that he loves his job, again embarrassing Clayton who tells her to cut it out. We've heard references to Leo's wife Mary before, but we've never seen her on screen. She's kind of the Maris Crane, or Columbo's wife of the series at this point. Lenore pulls out an old photo of Leo and Sam from when they were both COs, and remarks about how young they both were as Leo agrees and thanks her as he places it in the breast pocket of his suit, Lenore commenting to keep Sam there, close to his heart, and to look after Clayton too as she says goodbye and she embarrasses Clayton one last time wishing him a happy birthday, something which even Leo didn't seem to know about. I really like Lenore, she's so sweet. But this photo that she gives to Leo posed a bit of an issue. If you'll recall when Leo called Clayton to his office following the stun gun incident, he tells Clayton to take a look at a picture on his desk before forcing him down and giving him a talking to. 
You do have to look close at it, but the photo in that scene is the same one that Lenore gives Leo in this scene. I'd like to think that it's a case that this scene was originally intended to be in a different episode, but I'm leaning more towards just thinking that this is a mistake based on a couple of scenes coming up. Like I say, you do have to look for it in the earlier episode, it's in episode 4, Unnatural Disasters, but once you know it's there, you notice it here. It's not something that means we have a massive plot hole, although we have had those before and we will have some more as we continue on, it's more of a minor annoyance if you spot it. So with the news out about it being Clayton's birthday, it's time to have a party as we see Diane bringing in a cake, and Ray frantically trying to find some candles, but they can't find any, and he hasn't got time to go into town before Clayton's shift starts, so Diane says about just using some from his office. Ray says that it was a great idea to throw a surprise party, so Clayton must have let it slip at some point, as Diane says that her heart goes out to him knowing what it's like to be the newbie, and how everyone is constantly judging you, plus with the whole history surrounding Sam's death. Ray says, matter-of-factly, that he's been looking into what Giles told him last episode about Leo being the killer, and how he's conflicted about what to do to the point that he just starts babbling. When Ray tells Diane that Giles said that it was Leo, she cracks wise about it being Leonardo DiCaprio, which for the time was an easy gag to write, DiCaprio coming off the success of Titanic a couple of years earlier. Diane isn't buying Giles' story, calling him delusional, and Ray even says that he's tried to dismiss it, but there's a part of him that still thinks there could be something to it, and that it could explain why no one was identified as the killer at the time, and that maybe Leo has never told the whole truth. He then sticks his finger in the icing of the cake and has some. Like, what the fuck, Ray? Wait till it's been cut before you start doing shit like that. As he leaves to go and get the candles, Diane tells him that if he has any doubts about Leo, he owes it to him to tell him first. Considering how she went about covering up the killing of Scott Ross at the start of Series 2, Diane has done a complete 180 since then, and more often than not comes across as the voice of reason. That, coupled with how she's been supporting McManus in his problems with Claire, perhaps time away from M-City has allowed for some personal reflection. Quick shot of the library where Clayton is blowing out the makeshift birthday candles in front of the other COs, begging the question who the hell's watching the inmates, as we cut away to Ray running into Leo. As they walk to Leo's office, Ray tells him that he's been asking around about Sam's death and that he's been talking to William Giles, who Leo refers to as Looney Tunes. Ray says that he doesn't think that Giles is crazy, but more that he's afraid to be sane, which is an interesting take on it, and he then tries to reveal what Giles has told him, but he's struggling to do so, almost like he doesn't want to upset Leo because he's his boss, but he also seems to have a tremendous amount of respect for him too. As Leo prompts him for an answer, Ray finally manages to get it out, almost like he's decided to stop dancing around the issue, and that he's been told that Leo was the killer. Unsurprisingly, Leo doesn't take this well and storms into his office, which for the first time seems to happen from the other side, almost like it's a secret doorway that leads into it. We've seen the door on the other side of the office look like this before, but this is the first time that we've seen it from this side, and I do like the idea that Leo has a number of different secret entrances and exits from his office, like it's Wayne Manor. Ray acknowledges that Leo has told Clayton the truth so far, but if there is more to it, then Clayton has a right to know. Leo says that he doesn't have to explain himself to Ray, which Ray agrees with, but he tells Leo that he does have to explain himself to Clayton and likens it to a confession, something which only has to be made once and to the person that can absolve him. 
Leo dismisses Ray from his office, clearly pissed off at being told what he needs to do. A possible admission of his guilt, and a realisation that time has caught up with him. Ray is kind of between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't seem certain about what Giles has told him, but he also hasn't got anything else to go on, so he kind of has to pursue this lead. He isn't accusing Leo of being the killer, at least not directly. He's just looking for an answer to the one thing that he's been able to uncover. Cut back to the library where Diane and Clayton are cleaning up after the party, being made to hurry up by a librarian as the library gets opened up and Ryan enters. He's getting some stick from another inmate, played here by Jerome Edwards, about how Cyril fights like a girl. Ryan offers him the chance to go a couple of rounds with Cyril, and it quickly becomes something of a shouting match as Clayton steps in to break it up. Ryan tells Clayton to say it to the brother over here, which he's got a point, he didn't start this, as Clayton tells him to sit down. They go back and forth a couple of times, but Clayton gives Ryan a little shove, and then pulls out his nightstick and threatens Ryan with it. As he pulls it back, Diane takes a shot in the face and falls to the ground, as the inmates make a quick escape, and we see that Diane has a bit of a cut on her forehead. Now, this... this did look a bit silly, and in hindsight there was probably a bunch of different ways you could have done this and got the same result to illustrate Clayton's recklessness. But what we got here was, for lack of a better term, slapstick comedy. It's like something from a Three Stooges sketch. Now, I'm not against there being some comedy on the show. I've been very open about that, and this series has had some very good comic moments scattered throughout it. But the difference between those and this is that this wasn't meant to be funny. It is what it is, but to say that this didn't hit the target would be an understatement. We go to the kitchen where Leo is sat waiting for Clayton, and he asks whether or not Diane will be okay. Clayton saying that she's had some stitches and has a mild concussion which must be really mild, because he didn't seem to pull back that far. Leo asks what the hell Clayton was thinking, as Clayton tries to explain that he was maintaining order. Leo says that he's warned Clayton before, which Clayton thinks is the precursor to being fired, but Leo tells him to sit down and explains about the day on which Sam died, as we close out Act 2. Your dad and I were both on duty. I made up my mind when I first walked into Oz, I was going to treat each situation as a worst-case scenario. Sam knew better, and he tried to hold me back. He tried. But I was... I was too young, too determined, too stupid. I broke the fight apart, but I tripped or slipped on the slop on the floor I was stunned, losing control, and then all my wind left me. Your dad had to get involved. You okay? Okay. He fell right next to me. I didn't know what the fuck was happening. By then, other officers responded. I just held him until he died. In my arms, at the hands of my stupidity. <sighs> Classic way of telling a flashback right here with the focus glare and the sepia tone. 
But one thing that's odd about it is that the person playing Sam isn't credited. Young Leo was played by an actor named Ian Eaton, who had a good likeness to what I imagine a young Ernie Hudson would have looked like. And the inmate with the glasses was meant to be a younger William Giles, and was played by Danny Downey, another member of the cast more known for his work as a stunt performer. I'm not going to include them in the Oz 1 and Done Club because they're playing the parts of younger versions of already established characters rather than characters that have come in for a one-shot. It's a good bait and switch as well of Giles referring to Leo's actions as being the cause of Sam's death rather than Leo being the actual killer. Leo has been carrying this guilt around with him for years and has been forced to finally reveal the truth. And having Giles be the character to be the one to force his hand was as good a choice as any. His mental state is an effective tool to raise doubt in his credibility, which Ray and the others don't hide their feelings about. But at the same time, from what we've seen of him on the show so far, Giles isn't a liar, it just takes some time and effort to get to the point that he's making. How Clayton will react to the news of his mentor and father figure being the one responsible for his biological father's death remains to be seen, but that slow walk away that he did probably doesn't bode well. Into Act 3, and we kick off with McManus meeting up with Diane in the changing room and checking on her. He says that when he heard that she'd got hurt, he went crazy and asks about maybe giving it another shot between the two of them, something which he's been over a bunch of times in his own mind. Diane jokes about that being a political move rather than a romantic one, due to having a golf ball-sized lump on her head, but they're interrupted by Claire, who enters and calls them lovebirds. Diane seizes the opportunity to make her own political move, and plants a passionate kiss on McManus which makes Claire leave, as we cut to an Augustus vignette about a Wall Street exec who wore women's underwear to the office underneath his Brooks Brothers suit, and we also see Keller sat in an office chair wearing said undies. Augustus quips that Mr Wall Street would feel pretty oh so pretty, a reference to West Side Story, and I'm in no doubt that Chris Maloney had the time of his life filming this little segment, and was probably well up for wearing those undies. It's not the last time that we'll see him in women's underwear either, he did the same in an episode of Happy Years after this. Cut to Unit E, where Nat is finishing up the closing chapter to Napa's tell-all book, and what a final paragraph this is. People must wonder what I miss most. The money, the power, limousines, ladies, my own personal army. Well, they call this place ours, and just like that redhead Mick Tramp said in the movie, there's no place like home. Nat, who isn't prone to hyperbole, calls it the greatest true crime book since In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's non-fiction novel from 1966 detailing the murders of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. Napper says that he's never read that book, but Nat assures him that while that was chilling, this book is even better, and removes a floppy disk from the drive of the computer and places it in an envelope, saying that they're going to send it straight to the literary agent. Floppy disks, man. Back in the day when you could store a whopping 1.4 megabyte on a portable drive. They seem prehistoric now, but the university I went to was still using them when I left in 2006. Nappa asks Nat to be careful, saying that if the other wise guys find out about the book, then they're both dead. As Nat's all, Oh, I'll be careful, don't you worry, Mr. Nappa, and proposes a celebration for later tonight, and that they can get dressed to the nines. Nappa saying that he'll think about it. Nat leaves the cell and places the envelope in their trousers, as they approach a guard saying that they need to head to the ER before fainting to the ground in proper amateur dramatic fashion. 
We see Nat hand off the envelope once they get into the hospital, the thermometer in the mouth being a nice touch, and then see Kiki and Tony Masters pass the envelope onto Chucky in MC. Chucky pays them with a carton of cigarettes, classic form of prison currency that we've discussed before, and asks about their friend taking care of that other matter before he then crushes the floppy disk in his hand, calling Napper a fucking rat. We've touched upon Chuck Zeta and his history with the Hells Angels before, and that tattoo on his chest is a real tattoo, but in storyline terms it would be odd for a mob guy to have biker ink like that. Napper heads down to his cell, where he finds Nat has dressed for the occasion in a black dress and a red-haired wig, and the look on his face coupled with the, oh Jesus, was absolutely priceless. Nat presents a candlelit dinner for them to tuck into, but Napper seems more bothered that Nat looks like his ex-wife. I think that Nat here has a real look of Peggy Bundy about them, which for this time would be a recognised look, but I don't know if Married With Children was still on at this time or not. Nappa soon changes his tune once Nat presents him with a bottle of wine, saying that Nappa isn't the only one who can move merchandise. Nat proposes a toast to Nappa's book, his life, and the successful completion of both, Nappa proclaiming that he ain't dead yet, with Nat following up with, No, you're not which should have set the alarm bells going, looking back at it. At night, Chucky tells Don that, in his day, Napper was a great man and like a father to him, then corrects himself saying that he was more like an uncle, as we cut back to Unit E, where Nat is blowing out the candles as Napper takes a drunk nap. Nat shakes Napper to see if he's responsive, but Napper doesn't move, which is Nat's cue to grab a pillow and hold it over Napper's face, smothering him to death as we transition to another Augustus vignette. So that's it, that's the end of Antonio Napa, smothered to death with a pillow after a booze-fueled night celebrating his book that no one will ever read. Quite sad to see him go, in all honesty. I always quite like seeing Mark Magolas pop up in whatever I might be watching. Napa's death, however, does leave the door open for Chucky to now assume full control of the Italian gang, and will place him in good stead with whoever he was on the phone to last episode. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, Chucky is now the fourth leader that the Italians have had on the show, but perhaps most importantly is that he is younger than what Nino and Napa were. Peter Shabetta had youth on his side too, but he was quickly exposed as not being able to lead. And while Chucky may be a touch older than Peter, he has a toughness that the young Shabetta didn't. So it'll be interesting to see where the Italians go from here, especially with the Latinos currently being questioned about the drugs. So Augustus waxes lyrical about how the citizens of Gotham City were pretty stupid to not put together that Batman and Robin were Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson when the evidence was right there in front of them. As I said earlier, I'm much more of a Batman guy than I am any other comic superhero. I've got him tattooed on my leg for Christ's sake, and I really liked both Adebisi and Kenny in their superhero costumes as Oman and Z-Boy. Adebisi looked fucking great in his posh boy clothes too, and that hand on Kenny's thigh added the right amount of creepiness and unease to the whole thing. Great stuff. So we're out of the darkness and into the light as a new day begins with Adebisi and Kenny heading down to see Murphy, with Adebisi demanding to speak to Leo. Murphy asks him why, but Adebisi tells him that it's his business. Murphy uses the most basic of logic to get the information out of Adebisi saying that he should know by now that your business is my business, and Adebisi tells him that he wants to file a complaint against McManus. And we get some more eye acting from Kenny, something that we've become quite accustomed to on the show. Cut to Leo's office, where Adebisi is accusing McManus of sexually harassing Kenny, 
saying that McManus touched Kenny's penis. Leo calls for an officer, who enters via the newly discovered secret door, and asks for him to bring Kenny in. As Kenny takes a seat, Leo tells him that this is a very serious charge, and that the burden of truth is on Kenny. Claiming to be used to guys trying to grope him, Kenny says that he's been sad recently due to the death of his wife, and that McManus put his arm around him, but not like how a friend would, and that Adebisi had convinced him to speak up about it, and that what goes on with us prisoners is one thing, and what goes on with McManus is something else, almost like there's some kind of convict code. Armed with the information that he has, Leo informs McManus of the accusation. Something that McManus thinks is so serious, he's upgraded from bullshit to horseshit, and that he was just trying to comfort Kenny. He asks Leo if he's taking any of this seriously, but Leo points out that Claire has already accused him of the same crime, asking whether or not she's full of shit too, and asks when does it stop being everybody else's problem. McManus says that Leo is making out like he's a sex addict, Leo saying that maybe he is, strengthening his case by mentioning that ever since McManus came to Oz, He's watched him jump in and out of beds and admits that he found it disgusting, but he held his tongue. McManus tells Leo once more that Kenny is lying, which Leo admits is probable, but that maybe there were others who have yet to step forward and says that he doesn't know how to find out. But if any of this is in fact true, then McManus is finished at Oz as we close the scene. That scene went a long way in establishing Leo's somewhat conservative views, particularly with Leo calling McManus out on his promiscuous bed-hopping. We've talked before about how there is a mutual respect between the two of them, but with these two sets of allegations against him, McManus is fast losing that respect, and we see that conservative Leo is fast becoming the polar opposite of the more liberal McManus, a strong use of a binary opposition. Cut to the visiting room behind the glass where Adebisi is meeting with exposition newsman Rick Don and says that he's got a story for him all about sex, which Rick seems to think will be great as he makes his cameraman sit down and start rolling. We get a quick montage of Rick talking with Leo, Kenny and Claire, before finally approaching McManus in his office for a comment. But McManus tells him to do one as we go around the inmates watching the report on the news. One inmate in particular chuckling away to himself is Jazz Hoyt, back from the hole for the first time since the start of the series, and who has presumably avoided an attempted murder charge because he's in M-City and not in solitary. We also see the staff watching the report, and the only one who's looking happy about things is Claire, who's grinning like the cat that got the cream. Murphy meets up with McManus in his office, saying that Kenny has been moved to Genpop, and asks whether or not McManus has called his lawyer. Much like Sister Pete earlier on, McManus is giving it the stare longingly out of the window treatment, and that he's been advised to act normal, something which he says got him into this in the first place. Murphy places his hand on McManus' shoulder, telling his friend that things are going to be okay, as we see Kenny leave the unit and McManus locks eyes with Adebisi. Murphy knows McManus better than anybody apart from maybe the women that he slept with, and it was nice to see him stick by his friend. Having your friend accused of such a thing would put Murphy in an awkward position under normal circumstances, but it says a lot about him and the respect that he has for McManus that he's willing to support him in his hour of need. Cut to death row where McManus has gone down to meet with Shirley, and this answers my question from back in series 2 about whether or not husband and wife Terry Kinney and Catherine Irby shared a scene together. Terry and Catherine had been married for about 6 years at this point, and I honestly didn't remember this scene existing, mainly because I don't see why these two characters would ever cross paths. 
Shelly arrived at Oz and was placed on death row straight away, while McManus manages a different unit, so I don't see why they'd ever interact. McManus even acknowledges it himself, saying that he's curious why Shelly has asked to see him. And Shelly says that she's received a number of, as she describes them, stunning blows, including Richie Hanlon's murder, which McManus says they're still investigating, and that her final appeal has been rejected by the state's Supreme Court meaning that she's set to be executed the following Thursday, and she makes a big thing about finally saying the word execution out loud as she holds McManus' hand. She mentions that Leo has informed her that she can choose her execution method, and she's hopeful that McManus will help her choose one, which is a hell of a thing to drop on someone you've just met. But she says that Richie always spoke so highly of McManus, calling him a good man. Shirley's cell is plastered in pictures of Jesus Christ and a slogan that says Jesus heals. I'm sure they've probably been there for a while, but they're really noticeable in this particular scene and are used ironically because what Shirley did to her child was so evil even the most fundamentalist of Christians would struggle to forgive her for child murder. She asked McManus what method he would choose if he was set to die, but being put on the spot leaves him going with a safe option of choosing lethal injection as it's said to be the least painful. The joke about pain being a particular consideration, my man is thinking it should be the only consideration, but Shirley wants her death to have a certain amount of lyricism and significance. With that in mind, McManus suggests the gas chamber, which in the real world, even after the 1995 reinstatement in New York State, wasn't an offered method. But Shirley says that the gas turns your skin green, so that's out. The last person executed by gas chamber in the US was German national Walter Legrand, who was executed in the state of Arizona on March 3rd, 1999, so the same year in which this episode was broadcast, even though the state had voted in November 1992 that anyone sentenced to death would die by lethal injection, Legrand having been sentenced prior to the vote. Mamanus then suggests the method of hanging, again, not offered by New York State, because when you die, your feet do a little dance of death, and he even does a little motion with his fingers. Shirley is thrilled with that suggestion, saying that she wants to go out of this life dancing, and thanks McManus by giving him a little kiss on the hand. The last person to be hanged in the US was in the state of Delaware, when Billy Bailey was hanged on January 25th, 1996. Similar to Arizona, Delaware had changed the law a number of years previously to have lethal injection be the main method of execution, but as Bailey, much like Walter Legrand, had been convicted prior to the law change, he was still able to select a secondary method, which in the state of Delaware by default was execution by hanging. Shirley tells McManus that Richie had a little crush on him, which seems to unsettle McManus a little bit, but Shirley says that she can see why. Not succumbing to Shirley's flirtations, McManus calls for an officer and is allowed out of the cell. But before he goes, Shirley tells him not to despair over the allegations against him, as McManus looks surprised that she knows about them. Shirley saying that even on death row, rumours live as he exits the scene, and Shirley goes to a mirror and imagines herself being hung using some sort of scarf. Great little scene between real-life husband and wife here, and I guess that's one of the reasons why it works so well. To answer Shirley's questions about what method I'd pick, I'd probably go with what Donald Groves did and go with Death by Firing Squad. Partly because I kind of like the idea, in a weird, morbid kind of way, of five or so people being told they might have killed me, or then again, maybe they didn't, and they'll never really know for sure. 
Cut to the library where we're in a staff meeting and they're discussing buying some new puncture-resistant vests due to a rise in attacks on COs. Murphy claiming that there's an attack every hour and around 10,000 per year. That sounds like a ludicrous statistic at first, but his maths does check out. 10,000 by 365 is 27.4, which divided by 24 rounds at 1.1 per hour, so fair play Sean Murphy. Mamanis interrupts the meeting, telling everyone that Gloria has just got through examining Shirley in preparation for next week's execution. Only there's a slight complication as we close out Act 3. Are you ready for this? Gloria Nathan just examined Shirley Bellinger. She's pregnant. Four then kicks off in the computer room with an overexcited Cyril doing some shadow boxing, and Ryan sat at the computer telling him to calm down. Augustus boosts Malice and Rebido enter the room, but Cyril gets in their way throwing some playful jabs, Augustus even throwing his hands up in surrender. Ryan tells Cyril to go outside in an effort to calm him down, which Cyril eventually does, and the others inquire about who Ryan is putting his money on for the semi-final match between Amid and Jason. This scene has some quite liberal use of the term faggot again, which, looking back through 2020 eyes, is uncomfortable and not cool, but as I've mentioned before, that is the parlance of Oz and the people who inhabit it. Ryan says that he's sitting this fight out, which arouses suspicion from Rebido, who notes that Ryan has picked the winner of every fight, but Ryan explains it away, saying that he doesn't want to jinx his brother before the final next week. Boosmalis joins the pylon, saying that he never took Ryan for being superstitious, but Ryan calls himself a man of logic and planning, factoring in every detail, all the possibilities, before finally flipping a coin to decide. Considering all of that, Boost Malice asks Ryan, just hypothetically, if you were to bet, who would it be on? Ryan admits that Hamid has the power advantage, which gets a, so you're betting on the Muslim, but Jason has the speed and style, so you're betting on Jason, asks Augustus. Or words to that effect, I might have tidied that up a little. But ultimately Ryan is going to let fate decide, and tosses him a coin. First time for a while that we've seen anything major from Boost Malas and Rebido. They've kind of taken a backseat to proceedings in recent episodes since Rebido's diabetes diagnosis and meeting with his relatives. Which is a shame because I do like them as a double act, but I suppose there isn't a whole lot for them to do at the moment, so it's probably best to stick them on the subspench until they're needed. Which is kind of what we have them doing here, they provide a logical distraction to separate Ryan and Cyril, as we hear a commotion from outside which makes Ryan leg it to his brother's aid, as Cyril has decided to throw hands with Jazz. And while Cyril obviously doesn't mean any ill intent, Jazz won't see it that way because that's just the kind of guy that he is. Murphy helps Ryan separate the two of them, Cyril proclaiming his innocence, saying he's just boxing, with Jazz calling him a fruitcake, i.e. Cyril is nutty as a fruitcake, and is an insult which I'll come back to in a little bit. Ryan apologises to Murphy, saying that ever since beating Chucky, Cyril has been a bit frisky. Murphy tells Cyril to save it for the ring, Cyril saying yes sir, which I thought was a nice touch and tells Ryan to watch his brother because it would be a shame for him to end up in the hole and be disqualified from the tournament. Murphy leaves and the brothers make their way back to their pod, Ryan asking what Cyril was thinking picking a fight with Jazz, 
But Cyril says that when he fights, people cheer. And that he likes it when they do, because he isn't afraid anymore. Which, holy fuck, that nearly brought a tear to my eye. It was so sweet. Ryan says that it's great that Cyril feels that way, but he doesn't have to fight all the time. But Cyril says, why not? You always do. Going from absolute sweetness to delivering a devastating burn. Cut to the Black Panthers slash Muslims in the classroom who are discussing the upcoming fight and how Jason represents everything that is, and I quote, repulsive to our faith regarding sexual desire and that Hamid's victory will be a victory for purity, for righteousness and for Allah. Speaking of the sexually depraved, Adabizi enters the room, but Hamid tries to show him away. But Adabizi makes a crack about maybe wanting to learn about Islam, as Hamid makes him get to his point. Adabizi says that they all share the same colour, and that they're not like them, as we get a quick shot of McManus and Murphy. And he tells Hamid to beat Jason not because he likes boys, but because he's white before exiting the room. So Adabizi hinted last episode about bringing in one of us to take over from McManus, which obviously ties into this allegation of abuse from Kenny, but he's also going around and rallying the rest of the black inmates to seemingly start some kind of race war. He and the Muslims are as far apart in terms of ideology as you could get, but in Oz, their skin colour is more often than not their defining characteristic. Not that that's right, of course, you only have to look at the world in 2020 to see that racism is still a major problem, but here it is the most basic of commonalities that could ultimately unite those who would previously be at odds. And you can see why Adabizi would do this, as the Muslims under Hamid's leadership do seem to be shifting more towards a racial equality group in terms of their appearance with their resemblance to the Black Panthers. It was nice as well to see that Arif's new hat had finally arrived, and he now fits in with the rest of the group. Cut to Unit B, where Jason is making out with who is presumably his Anthony that he spoke of previously. They're interrupted by Schillinger, Jason being another one to pronounce his name wrong. Hey. What do you want, Schillinger? Schillinger. Who tells Jason that he wants him to stop focusing on his dick and focus on the fight. Jason says that in all the time they've been in Unit B together, which is only actually a few months when you look at the timeline and taking into account future events, which I won't spoil here, Schillinger has never given a shit about him, but now that he's boxing a Muslim, Schillinger is suddenly his best pal, and that it must have been a difficult choice in deciding who to root for, considering Schillinger's prejudice towards both men, but the Schillinger probably knows more about having his dick sucked than having an afro. Jason is great at playing on Schillinger's hatred, and while it will have no doubt been eating away at him inside, he warns Jason to watch his mouth, otherwise Hamid will win by default. He leaves without any violence as Jason goes back to his makeout session. Other than the previous reference to him in this scene here, this is the only time that we'll ever see Anthony, and I don't think he ever gets mentioned again, nor could I find a name for this actor as the role went uncredited. Cut to the fight in progress as Kenny repeatedly calls Jason a fruit, which along with the earlier use of fruitcake from Jazz, is a horrific term used as far back as the 1930s, where more often than not homosexual men, but also other LGBT people, were diagnosed as diseased and as such deemed to be mentally unsound who could be cured, and I'm doing the air quotes thing there, through various means such as castration, pudendal nerve surgery, and in some cases lobotomies. In the US, psychiatric institutions where these procedures were carried out up until the 1950s when they underwent reforms were often referred to as fruitcake factories. 
since this episode went to air, the term has been reappropriated as a term of endearment within the LGBT community, similar to the reclaiming of the terms queer and dyke. So the joke's on you, Kenny. Tony Masters is working Jason's corner while a fight breaks out between Kiki and Fiona over who gets to hold up the card for round two. Fiona winning that one easily. The bell rings for round two, and Amid gets the better for the most part as Adebisi shouts, Kill the white bitch, something which gathers pace in the form of a chant as the round comes to a close. Round three gets underway with Jason getting the better of Amid this time, landing a good uppercut and playing mind games by squeezing Hamid's ass while in the clinch. A risky strategy, knowing that it could have angered Amid, but Jason hangs in there as both men land strong shots at the end, as the bell rings signalling the end of the fight. Both men seem confident of having picked up the win, as we head to the judges' scorecards. Here's Sean Murphy. All right, all right. Oh. From the judges' scorecard, we have from Judge 1, 30-29, Khan. Yeah. Oh. Judge 2! Judge 2 has it, 29-28, Kramer. Yes! And Judge 3, Judge 3 has it, 30-29, the winner by split decision, Hamid Khan. So as I mentioned, a very close fight between these two, which was reflected in the judges' scorecards, presumably using the 10-point must system. Judges 1 and 3 even seemed to score two rounds as a tie, while Judge 2 saw a clear winner in each round. So Hamid is heading to the finals to face Cyril, and we saw at the end there Adebisi being the one to raise Hamid's hand in victory. So it'll be interesting to see how their relationship develops as we head into the series finale. Something that's quite subtly done as you don't notice it during the fight, the crowd are separated into whites on one side and blacks on the other indicative of the racial tension that's bubbling underneath the surface. And there was something else that I noticed watching this back, which probably means absolutely nothing, and I'm probably reading too much into it, but I think Dagnasty is a racist homophobe. Seriously, watch it back, and after Murphy declares Hamid the winner, when Dagnasty lets go of both men's hands, he wipes his hands on his chest, almost like he's wiping off some dirt. Like I say, it's probably absolutely nothing, especially from such a minor character, but maybe Douglas Crosby went in the business for himself and added a trait to the character. Who knows? Before we go into the final scenes, Augustus narrates about the different labels that people get bestowed upon them. And a lot of them are pretty straightforward and there's a really funny shot of Don Zangi being called a pizza delivery boy while having the most gormless looking face imaginable. And there's one of a doctor who I've no idea who it is, but he looks a bit like Dr. Dre. The one that caught my attention though is Schillinger being referred to as a wasp. I didn't understand it then, nor did I understand it until looking it up just now, and it's a term referring to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, used to describe the upper-class elite who were often of British descent, and during the later 20th century, it was increasingly criticised for its use as being the epitome of referring to the establishment. While there's been no indication that Schillinger himself may have come from the upper class in terms of his upbringing, he as a white male will have had more privilege come his way because of his heritage and ancestry, which will have contributed to formulating his beliefs too. When Augustus mentions being Italian, we get a shot of Napper in the pod, which always struck me as a bit odd having just died on screen a few minutes earlier. So maybe this is another example of the segment being intended to be in a different place in the episode and things got moved around. 
or it could just be an oversight. Augustus finishes up by saying that in the end, something comes along and blows all those illusions to shit as we cut to Beecher and Saeed praying in their pod, both in the midst of their respective crisis of identity, as Keller watches from his own pod. Cut to the next day, where the Muslims are going through their... routines, I guess you could call them? As Adabizi heads down to the pod where he runs into Beecher. Aside from a brief moment during the riot, this, I think, is the first proper interaction that Beecher and Adabizi have had since the first episode, when Adabizi stole Beecher's watch and threatened the make of his prag. And it was interesting to see how both characters now act so differently towards each other. Adabizi asks if Beecher is Saeed's bodyguard now, Beecher saying, kind of, but not really, as he then gives the pod glass a tap with his cane, Saeed giving the okay for Adabizi to enter. Adabizi describes life in Oz as being up and down, and how first he was king, then he was loony, and now he's king again. A bit of an overstatement there from Adabizi, he had a presence for sure when the show started, but I wouldn't say that he was king necessarily. Those first few episodes, he was definitely second in command behind Jefferson Keane. He tells Saeed that while they come at the well from different paths, he's always had an admiration for him, Saeed reciprocating the feeling. He tells Saeed that he doesn't have to be alone and asks him to join him, but stops short of saying that they can rule the galaxy as father and son. Saeed, admitting that he's honoured, politely refuses the offer as Adabizi says that they referring to the Aryans, which we'll touch upon in a few minutes, will kill Saeed and that Beecher won't be able to protect him. But Saeed says that he is prepared to take whatever journey Alara has chosen for him as Adabizi leaves the pod. Great little scene between Adewali and Eamon here, and again, this is the first time in a long time that these characters have had a meaningful interaction between each other rather than in a wider setting. I think the last time they were focused squarely on each other was when Saeed held a gun to a drug withdrawn Adabizi during the riot. I've mentioned presence when talking about both men in the past, and putting them together like this only reaffirmed that. I ended up having to watch this scene a few times because I just couldn't take my eyes off it. A great scene and one of my favourite ones in this series. There's another scene similar to this in the middle of series 4 which I think even tops this one, but of course... We'll cover that when the time is right. Quick scene in the kitchen of Schillinger telling his goons that the time to strike is now, because Saeed no longer has his bodyguards, and how they can even kill Beecher in the process. Cut away from them as Keller tries to sit down with Beecher and Saeed. Beecher tells him no and shoes him away in a manner which was much funnier than it was meant to be, with Keller saying that they need the firepower and to go fuck themselves as he leaves. With Keller gone, Saeed delivers some words of wisdom to Beecher. You came to me wanting to learn how to get closer to God because you were part in the death of Andrew Schellinger. The guilt you carry can only be lightened by forgiveness. I want to be forgiven. So you must forgive Schellinger and Keller. I can't. Beecher, you must. And what about you? Don't you have to forgive Hamid Khan? Back in M-City and as a united unit, Beecher and Saeed head up to Amid's pod. But Saeed says that he needs to go this one alone, as Beecher says peace be unto you. In the background you can see Adabizi lurking around too. Admittedly he is outside his own pod, but perhaps he's symbolic of having got into Saeed's head. 
This, like a lot of things, has had a slow burn built over the course of this third series. As you'll recall that Saeed was watching on in the background when Adebisi returned to M-City from the psych ward, and there could have been a little more too with that part of the deleted scene we discussed previously. There's also a slight continuity error here, where on the close-up of Beecher and Saeed you see Adebisi enter his pod, only to enter it again when we cut to the wider shot of Saeed approaching a reef, but that's a minor niggle. Saeed tries to walk past his former followers, still referring to them as his brothers, but they block his path before Hamid gives the okay for Saeed to enter. Hamid asks what Saeed wants, referring to him as black man rather than still being a Muslim, as Saeed tells him that five years ago he was a very different man, saying that he was selfish, ambitious, manipulative and arrogant. But while on a trip to Mecca, the holiest city in Islam and not to be confused with the chain of British bingo clubs, he was filled with the grace and glory of Allah, and that he wanted to show others the visions and possibilities that he had seen. He admits that since that time, and despite all of his intentions, he was still selfish, ambitious and manipulative, but he had become even more arrogant, and that he has been humbled by the events of the past few months, but humbled by God rather than the actions of Amid. Claiming to be stripped of everything else, Saeed says that he has nothing left but Allah, and that that is more than enough, as Hamid turns his back to him once again, the same as Saeed did when casting out Husseini, and the same as he did when casting out Saeed. Saeed tells Hamid peace be unto you as he leaves the pod and heads downstairs, Quran and beads in hand, dropping them to the floor as he reaches the centre of M-City, before falling to his knees and removing his dress shirt, t-shirt and kufi, before throwing himself to the floor. He raises back to his knees praying to Allah, the inmates of M-City gathering around to watch, as the Muslims, except for Ramid, turn their backs to him once more. This scene and that image of Saeed on his knees in particular is one of the standout moments of the third series, maybe even the show in general, and I absolutely love the juxtaposition of Saeed being completely surrounded by his peers, yet completely alone at the same time. Telling as well that the last inmate shown to gather was Adebisi, building that relationship between the two once more. Great stuff once again. Good work, Adam Bernstein. Cut to the computer room where Keller is struggling with his computer, saying that he has error code 8257, meaning that his computer may be infected by some kind of malware, spyware, or virus, begging the question what might be included in Chris Keller's search history. We can see that he's trying to get his high school equivalency GED in English 7A though, so after the classes were removed and Jonathan Cushin disappeared at the end of series 2, it would appear that inmates can still do these classes online, which would have been a slow process in 1999. After attempting the tried and tested method of hitting the computer monitor a few times, Beecher enters the room and sorts the problem by pressing a couple of buttons. Keller says that he loved Saeed's floor show, but Beecher wants to talk to him about them, saying that Saeed is helping him see things more clearly, and even calls Keller Chris, which Keller reacts to as though it's never happened before, which might be a first on the show, but I'm sure that Beecher has called him that before. Beecher says that he forgives Keller and asks for him to do the same. Without hesitation, Keller stands up and the two hug and do that thing that guys do where they give each other a pat on the back. The scene closes with them saying that they love each other, as Keller asks for Beecher to kiss him. But that draws the ire of Beecher, who leaves telling Keller assalamu alaikum, 
perhaps viewing homosexuality different now with his newfound understanding of Islam. Cut to the gym where Ryan is prepping Cyril for the finals of the tournament. Keller approaches and asks to speak with Ryan, but Ryan is focused on training Cyril, until he's told that there's some money in it for him, then he's all ears. Keller says that he wants Ryan to kill Saeed, but Ryan tells him that Saeed's a nobody now, but be that as it may, Keller wants him taken out. Ryan wise to the fact that Keller doesn't want Beecher to know about it. Ryan tells Keller that the truth of the matter is that they might not need to do anything as the Aryans are so hellbent on killing Saeed themselves. And right on cue, Beecher and Saeed enter the gym and approach Schillinger, who is in the middle of his own workout. Ryan and Keller stand back and watch as Beecher, admitting that Schillinger will most likely think that what he's about to say is bullshit, admits that he feels badly about the part that he played in Andrew's death and apologises for that. He says that there's nothing worse than losing a child and that he wants to make it up to Schillinger, which makes him rise to his feet and walk away, all the while asking how the hell Beecher could even begin to make it up to him. Beecher offers to help Schillinger locate his other son, the previously mentioned Hank, who he has lost touch with. Schillinger asks if Beecher really thinks that that will make everything okay between them, Beecher saying that it's a start. Schillinger says that Beecher is crazier than he thought, and that there's only one thing that will make everything okay, and that's Beecher being dead as he removes a shank from his pocket and swipes at Beecher. Having noticed the shank just in time, Beecher strikes Schillinger with his cane as some of Schillinger's henchmen run into attack, but Saeed and the Muslims run in to help, Saeed attacking some bleached blonde guy that we've never seen before, as Amid puts in some body shots to Nuggets, who I found out recently is actually called Fred Wick, but I'm sticking with Nuggets. Cyril looks like he wants to get involved but is held back by Ryan as the brawl continues, with Keller fighting off some goons with a shank of his own, and Amid grabbing Saeed and pulling him out of harm's way. With Beecher distracted, Schillinger sees an opening and stabs Beecher in the kidney area, sending him to the ground. This allows for Keller to take advantage of his own opening, and he stabs Schillinger in a similar place using his shank, which in turn sends Schillinger to the ground clutching his midsection. The scene ends with Keller attending the Beecher as the sort run in to neutralise the situation, as we cut to M-City where Murphy declares a lockdown. An odd thing about this part here is that when Murphy calls the lockdown, we clearly see that Ryan and Cyril are in M-City. With a mass brawl occurring with at least two casualties, it seems odd that the O'Reillys would have been able to make it back to M-City before a lockdown was called, or that Murphy would wait for a certain amount of time before calling for one so I'm chalking that up as being another mistake. Augustus narrates about how people are defined by three things, as we also see the lockdown being implemented in Unit B, Schillinger and Beecher being rushed into the hospital, both men covered in blood, Saeed, Hamid and Keller being placed in their respective cells in solitary, Mamanas getting pissy with some paperwork in his office, and Ryan looking out over M-City from his pod, as well as shots of the empty library and cafeteria, before closing the episode on a CO mopping up the blood from the gym floor. People are defined by three things. Their heads. How they think. Their hearts, 
what they feel. Their dicks. Who they fuck. At the end of the day, each of us has to answer one question. One not so simple question. Who am I? Who am I? So there you go, Series 3, Episode 7, Secret Identities. Before I started this series for the podcast, I had decent memories of it from when I first watched it. Doing the reviews for the podcast, I came to find that there was a bit of a mid-season lull, but as we've continued and are now reaching the climax, Series 3 and this episode in particular have become proper action-packed stuff. This episode felt like it should have been the finale. You've got at least four pivotal moments in this episode. You've got the meeting between Miguel and Rivera, which as I mentioned earlier has had a real slow build throughout the last few episodes. You've got the murder of Antonio Napa, which now allows for Chucky to assume control of the Italians going forward. You've got Saeed making a scene in front of everyone in M-City. And you've got a mass brawl between four or five of the main cast, intertwined with the latest development in the Beach of Schillinger feud. The next episode deals with a lot of the fallout of what we had here, and it's a technique which Game of Thrones used very well years after this, where the ninth episode of the ten episode season would have a significant event occur, and the season finale would then deal with the aftermath of that. I'm not saying that Game of Thrones was influenced by Oz specifically, that would be a ridiculous claim to make. All I'm saying is that this episode in particular used a similar technique of having significant events occur in the penultimate episode rather than the finale itself, and I feel like it worked in both shows. I particularly like the Saeed segment because he is now at the complete opposite of where he has been at the end of the previous two series. At the end of series one, he was the de facto leader at the start of the riot, while series two saw the inmates chanting his name as he refused Devlin's pardon and early release. Series 3, however, all of that has gone. He's lost the respect of his Muslim peers, and as I mentioned earlier, was surrounded by inmates, yet is completely alone, with the exception of Beecher, another lost soul looking for answers. As for Beecher and Schillinger, we rarely see them interact in places other than the cafeteria, but here, we should have known that something was going to happen. Think back for a moment. Series 1, you had Beecher shit all over Schillinger's face, Series 2, Beecher gets his arms and legs broken. And now in Series 3, we have a mass brawl with two stabbings and a run-in from the saw. The one common factor in all of these instances? The gymnasium. When Schillinger and Beecher cross paths in the gym, we're in for a big moment, and this didn't disappoint. On top of all of that, we've got lingering questions about Sister Pete's future, as well as the impending race war made all the more dangerous as it seems to be spearheaded by Adebisi, the self-proclaimed king of MC. Get the fuck out of my office. Just the one deleted scene to talk about this time, which sees McManus meeting with Hamid in his office to discuss Hamid's new role as the leader of the Muslims as Murphy oversees things. He compliments Hamid's performance in the semi-final before saying that he and Saeed never totally saw eye to eye, which made things more difficult than they needed to be and that hopefully he and Hamid won't experience similar problems. Hamid seems open to the idea, saying that so long as McManus is reasonable, fair and respectful of his faith, he will do the same, which McManus agrees with. 
He does admit, however, that he is concerned about the sexual harassment allegations, even calling them disturbing, and that he isn't sure if McManus can be trusted. McManus dismisses Hamid from the office before admitting to Murphy that he's beginning to think that he misses Saeed. Bit of a nothing scene over all this one, it's not really a shock that Hamid would be disgusted by the harassment allegation considering his faith, and McManus, while maybe having a begrudging respect with certain individuals, is never going to be totally on the same page with the leaders of the gangs, so the right call to cut this in my opinion. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Antonio Napa, aka Mark Margolis. After leaving Oz, Mark appeared on film and on TV in numerous guest roles, often based on his Mediterranean heritage, as well as in mafioso-style roles, including 1999's Mickey Blue Eyes, which was released the week prior to this episode airing. In 2000, he appeared in the movies Dinner Rush and Requiem for a Dream, while in 2001 he earned credits for The Tailor of Panama, the TV movie Boss of Bosses, and also appeared in Ridley Scott's Hannibal, which featured a number of his Oz co-stars. Appearing in 2003's Daredevil in the uncredited role of Fallon, Mark followed this up in 2004, appearing as Mr. Pappas in House of D, while the following year he was credited for roles in Stay and Headspace, as well as 2006's The Fountain. In 2008, Mark had a number of minor film roles, including Defiance, The Wrestler, and as the title character in the short film The Model Maker. In 2010 he appeared in Black Swan, while in 2011 he was credited for roles in the fantasy drama One Fall, as well as The Courier. His most recent film credits are for the roles of Don Primo in 2018's Baja, 2019's Abe where he played Benjamin, and for the role of Itzik in the recently released Minyan. Not limited to film, Mark has also appeared in numerous roles on TV, with recurring roles in Ed on NBC, two episodes of Blue Bloods on CBS, the HBO production of Mildred Pierce, Person of Interest, American Horror Story Asylum, two episodes of Gotham, and three episodes of The Affair on Showtime. He is perhaps best known though for his role as Hector Salamanca, first appearing in the second season of AMC's Breaking Bad, a role for which he was nominated for Best Guest Starring Role on television at the 2011 Saturn Awards, as well as the 2012 Primetime Emmys where he was nominated for Best Guest Actor in a Drama Series. Since that time, Mark has reprised the role in Breaking Bad prequel Better Call Saul, appearing between the show's second and fifth seasons. At the time of recording, Mark's most recent TV credit was as Old Ivan in the debut episode of TNT's TV adaptation of Snowpiercer, while his next project is listed as the movie Broken Soldier, listed as completed but awaiting release. Also leaving the show and after landing possibly the biggest story of his journalistic career, we say goodbye to Oz TV newsman and exposition extraordinaire Rick Don, played by Tim Hopper. Appearing mostly in minor roles, post-Oz Tim has appeared in films such as Vanilla Sky, School of Rock, and First Born, while on TV he is credited with recurring roles in The Americans, Fox's TV adaptation of The Exorcist, Grave Secrets, and Chicago Fire, reuniting with Oz co-star Raymond Walker, as well as single appearance credits for shows such as Grey's Anatomy, Nurse Jackie starring Oz co-star Edie Falco, The Good Wife, Proven Innocent, and the first season of Fargo on FX. At the time of recording, Tim is set to appear in Utopia for Amazon Prime, as well as Fox's Next, both shows listed as being in post-production. 
My episode MVP, this was really difficult to call because like I mentioned, this was such an action-packed episode. But I think I'm gonna have to give it to Kareem Saeed for his display in MC. Having been cast out of the Muslim group, Saeed finally admits that all that he has left in his life is Allah. And making a display like that, giving himself to his faith in front of all the inmates was a brave move on his part. He doesn't care what others think anymore, the only opinion that matters to him is that of his lord. And he also gained some extra points for trying to save Beecher during the gym brawl. So for those reasons, Saeed wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Overcast, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast from. And the show is also now available on Podtail, Pod Paradise, and Pod Tappen. All of those places have the first two series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes there as well. Leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can email the show at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or get in touch through social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on the series finale of Inside Oz, the countdown is on and soon enough we will be Series 3 Episode 8 out of time, in which Claire and Diane come to blows over McManus, the racial tensions continue to fester, Leo makes a decision about Clayton's future which will have far-reaching consequences, and Cyril and Hamid square off in the championship bout of the Oz Boxing Tournament. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson. Go out and vote like your life depends on it, America, and I will catch you next time on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Ready for this?